For the past few months, we've been working our way through this letter of Paul's to the church in Ephesus. I love this letter. I love this letter. I love how it speaks to the miraculous turnaround that Christ accomplishes for those who trust in him. For those who have their trust in him, their, their lives are, are turned upside down. Completely changed. Once they were dead in their sin, they were completely lost. They were completely without any hope. Paul's, they, were, they were walking in darkness. Paul says they, they were darkness. Not only were they, they walking that way, but they were perpetuating it. They were, they were leading others towards sin and away from God. But because of Christ's intervention, they've been risen from the grave. We see this symbolized in baptism, right? They've been reunited with the only source of lasting joy and satisfaction. What an amazing thing this is. And not only that, they're promised the immeasurable riches of God's grace. That's what they have to look forward to. This, is an, this news is incredible. I love that. And I love that they've been rescued from this life of futility, right? From, from, from believing this lie that the good life can be found apart from joy in God. I love that. They're delivered from their former manner of life that was driven by this, that, fall, that false notion. They've been redirected to the beauty of God. And that, that life lived out in line with his and by the power of the Holy Spirit that that is an, an incredible, joyous thing to be a part of. That's awesome. This is the life that we were always meant to have. Just a couple of weeks ago, Rick pointed out from Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God. This is not some type of new revolutionary way of life for the human race. It's not a plan B. This is a return to plan A. He's talking about finally living the way we were created to live as people who were made in the image and likeness of God. We're made in his image and we're made to image God with our lives. You see, life was once about the kingdom of me. It centered all around me. I was doing what I wanted to do. And Paul lays out the different things that, that we fall into when we live for the kingdom of me. We live for all kinds of sexual perversions. We covet the things that other people have that we don't have because we think that if we have that, then we're going to get some type of joy that we don't have right now. And we're running towards rather than away from things that are taboo, thinking maybe we can find, what's that forbidden secret pleasure? Oh, I want to experience that. Oh, I heard someone's doing this over here. I want to check that out. We're trying to grab up everything for ourselves, caring little, often caring little or nothing about others. And we're seeing how much we control we can grab up for ourselves. Resisting any situation where we're going to be placed under the authority of someone else. But Paul says, this is not how you learned Christ. 
This is not you anymore. You've put off that old self and you've put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's 4 verse 24. So if you've placed your trust in Christ, welcome to the new life. This is it. And Paul's laying it out for us right here. The days of the kingdom of me, they're over. It's time to repent. It's time to turn around. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that we've put aside these deeds of darkness, we're to walk as children of light, he says. We're to, we're to walk by the Spirit. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking, we've been laying out what does that look like? What does life lived by the Spirit look like? And Tim talked about last week how it's not about cutting loose. It's not about unplugging, letting alcohol or some other chemicals dull our minds into some kind of transcendental stupor. It's not about that. It's, it means making every thought, taking every word and every action and bringing them into the examination room and asking, does this line up with God's will? Does this line up with my new life, what I'm supposed to be all about? He says we're supposed to be filled by the Spirit. Oftentimes when we think of being filled by the Spirit, we're thinking about people falling over, we're thinking about seeing visions, we're thinking about um, speaking some type of heavenly language. But when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, he gives us some very, very specific things that he means. This is what it looks like. The first thing he says, you're to be continually addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How often do you come up to believers with something that you've encountered in God's word and you just, you just got to share it with them because it's, it's touched your life in a deep and profound way? Or, or a worship song and you've got a line rolling around your head over and over again and it applies to something that's going on in your life and you, you just got to go tell someone. Or maybe you're going through something, you've gone through some hard situation in life, you've seen how God has been faithful to you, and how it's really just all about just placing yourself completely in his care and trusting him, and you want to go, you see someone who's struggling with that exact same thing, and you're just anxious, I want to just meet with them, I want to sit down, I want to have coffee, and I just want to share with them how good God is. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what the new life kind of looks like. And sure, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about a new TV program or, or a new restaurant that you've found over at the Irvine Spectrum or, or, or you know, a, a new surf spot or whatever it is that you're into. There's nothing wrong with getting excited about that, but that's not what drives you anymore. You want people to see how beautiful Christ is becoming to you. That's what your life is about now. You're you're walking by the Spirit. Paul says it's about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual, spiritual songs. He also says it's about singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What would your life be like if all day long, every day, you were just constantly thinking, how can I praise God? How can I praise God for what just happened over here, for what happened over here? Wouldn't life be different? And the hard things that we go through, wouldn't we approach them? Wouldn't we see them differently in, in, in this eternal light that, that this, this time I have right now and what I'm going through right now, this is going to end and God is somehow sovereign over this and he's called me to walk through this and he's going to accomplish something through this in my life? 
I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, a homeless man that some, jun- some of our junior hires and I encountered uh, when we were walking around in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, we, our job was to find a homeless person and take this person out to lunch and just give the kids an opportunity to really see what's going on here in downtown Los Angeles. And it's, you know, we, we actually encountered a, a man earlier that day um, who we were sharing the gospel with, and he's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, God can't, God wouldn't send these people to hell. And, this. and, you know, and he was, you know, asking us for stuff. And, you know, it just became very obvious that this guy was very needy. And that's, that's kind of what we've come to expect. But we came to this man, and we took him out for a hamburger. And we were, you know, very excited. We were able to give him a hamburger and some fries. And he said, you know what, this is a... It's the first time I've eaten in three days. And we said, well, we'll order you more. You know, here's my food. I'll share it with you. You know, yes, we want to help you. What else can we do for you? He said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the first time I've eaten in three days. But you know what? Those three days were wonderful because they were an opportunity for me to fast for my Lord. What? And he, and he went on. He said, you know, I haven't really spoken to anyone in about, in about 10 days. And we were saying, well, let, well, let's talk. Please dump on me. Share your sorrows. You know, how can we help you? No, no, no. You don't understand. Those were 10 days of uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. And that struck me. I want to have that kind of faith. I want to be continually singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord, not just in the good times, not just in the easy times, but in the times, the challenging ones, the things that don't make sense, and to say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I thank you for this. I want to be able to sing the words of that song, Blessed be your name, when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name, every blessing you pour out, I'll, I'll turn back to praise when the darkness closes in, Still I'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to be able to sing those words and mean them. Don't you? But you know, this isn't just a dream. This isn't just wishful thinking. Maybe someday we'll get there. Paul says, this is what you're to do right now. This is your life right now. This is walking by the Spirit. It's not about waiting until some weird, you get some weird transformational experience and all of a sudden when something hard comes your way, you're just happy. Okay, now I'm praising God. He did something for me. It's not about that. But it's about living out your faith right now, giving thanks to God for everything. And we can do that because we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him. We can do that because we now see things in an eternal light. That everything that comes our way is for our good and God's glory. We can do that because we know that when we meet trials of various kinds, the testing of our faith, it produces something in us. It builds some character in us. It produces steadfastness, Peter says. We can do that because despite the fact that our outer self is wasting away, and that's pretty obvious, right? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul says this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Being filled with the Spirit, it's about praising God all the time and thanking Him and trusting Him. And then Paul lists one last thing. One last thing. He says, being filled with the Spirit, 
is about continually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on and he starts listing off the different areas of your life. And he talks specifically about marriage and about your relationship with parents and and relationship with, uh, you know, in the workplace. He talks about that stuff. Don't you just love that word submission, though? I just can't get enough of it. I just, I mean, don't you just, uh, it, it, it comes so naturally, doesn't it? To, to submit to others. Uh, parents, don't, don't you just love it when your kids praise you behind your back? It happens all the time. I, I can't stop my daughter from doing it, right? How they, they talk to their friends about what a great job you're doing. How they love your, 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 your guidance in their lives. You're just, my parents, they're just so wise. And I just, I can't keep myself from, I just want to, you know, go hang out with them all the time and just sit at their feet and, and hear the wisdom of my parents, right? And, you know, the times when they have to correct me and they have to discipline me, man, it's just so good. I just love it. I just, I know I need it and I just want to be changed and I just want them to, want to be disciplined. Lord, you know, thank you for my parents. Students, don't you just love talking to your friends about how wonderful your teachers are? And I, I just love, you know, this, this teacher, and she just knows the, the, the right assignments to give me, those ones that are just going to challenge me in just the right way so that I'll just, I'll just grow and develop. And, you know, they're not too challenging, but challenging enough. And, you know, I mean, she's just so wise. And, you know, when, she, when I turn the paper and get my paper back with all those red marks on it, and I get that C+, I'm just like, that's what I deserved. Man, this teacher is good. I can't believe it. Or what about employees, right? Isn't it, isn't it amazing how you just, you can't, it's hard to stop just talking good about your boss. <laughs> They're the best. You just, you don't understand how they handle all the, the weight of the responsibility that's on their shoulders and, you know, how they, you know, they, 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 they're still, you know, managing to keep me on a screw-up like me and they're taking care of me and, I, you know, I just, my boss is the best, right? That's not how it is, is it? That's not how it is. In fact, when it comes to that word submission, the only time I like the word submit is when I'm telling someone else to do it to me, Right? I don't want to be told to submit to anybody else. That's not in my nature. And what is it about this, this word that we have such an aversion to it? I think one of the reasons is because of the, the history that, that we know that there's been of, of misuse of authority. We've seen it just generation after generation after generation. Where you find power, you often find an abuse of that power, right? You often find people grabbing up more power for themselves or more money for themselves or whatever it is that they want and all the while oppressing someone else, right? We see that all the time. We see it in politics. We see it in business. We see it in education. We see it on the playground. Over here at our preschool, we see it in the home. We've seen children abused. We've seen the elderly abused. Entire races abused. We've seen women just abused in despicable ways. Let's be clear on one thing this morning. As followers of Christ who have been set free from, from the captivity, from the enslavement to sin that we've all experienced, we should be the first to stand up against the humiliation, exploitation, oppression of people. 
We should be the first to stand. It's just, this is wrong. We need to take a stand against this. It's important for us to realize here that when Paul speaks of submission, he's not promoting that same type of barbaric, sinful uh, cycle of injustice that has been going on, that we've witnessed throughout history. In fact, when we look at Christ, we're looking at the one who stood in opposition to the tyranny of his day. John Stott, English theologian, writes this. He says, It was Jesus Christ who treated women with courtesy and honor in an age in which they were despised. It was Jesus Christ who said, Let the children come to me in a period of history in which unwanted babies were consigned to the local rubbish dump as they are today to the hospital incinerator. Or they were abandoned in the forum for anybody to pick up and rear for slavery or prostitution. It was Jesus Christ who taught the dignity of manual labor by working himself as a carpenter, washing the disciples' feet and saying, I'm among you as one who serves. And when Jesus detected, he started detecting in his disciples, they were starting to get into that same type of self-glorifying thinking He corrects it immediately. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. He says when you go to a restaurant, you, you, you sit down at a table and you feel like the king. I am here to be served. Bring me more food, right? Do whatever I ask. And if you don't do whatever I ask, well, you know, we're not going to give you a good tip. He says, doesn't it seem like the one who sits at the table is the greater one? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm here serving you. When Paul says that Christians are to submit to one another, he's not promoting some type of lord it over others mentality here. He's urging, he's urging us to yield our rights for the good of others just as Jesus Christ did for us. He's calling us to imitate God, just like he did in Ephesians 5.1. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to imitate God. You know, at the core of God, there are roles of submission and authority. In God himself, God is one in essence, but there's three distinct persons. There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are equally valuable Uh, share the same qualities, yet uh, they have different roles. There's an order to how they operate, and we see that played out in the plan of salvation. The Father sends the Son, and the Son carries out the will of the Father. And the Spirit applies the work of the Son to believers. There's a great example of this, this idea of submission in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus came out, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, 
Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Just before going to the cross, the Son of God, the one who created all things, shared perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity past. There he is pleading with the Father, take this cup from me. If there's, if there's any other way, please, let's do that. And yet as horrifying as the, the prospect of the coming hours were, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. That's an astonishing picture of submission, isn't it? It's astonishing. God in the flesh, ruler of heaven and earth, of the same essence, value, and glory as the Father. God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, second person in the Trinity, submitting to the Father. And Paul says, I want you to be imitators of God. This is what the new life looks like. Be an imitator of God. But submission, it's something that that we've all failed at, isn't it? Romans 3.23 says, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You could substitute in there, all have failed to submit and fall short of the glory of God. The very first sin was a failure to submit to God's will for their lives. Instead of trusting that God had their very best in mind and continue to rely on his provision and his love and his care for their lives, Adam and Eve decided to disobey the instructions and do things their way. It was a failure to submit. That's where, that's exactly where the kingdom of me got its start. It's all about me. I'm going to do things my way, God. Yeah, I know you created me. This beautiful garden, this beautiful wife I've got here. But, you know, we're going to, we're going to move on. We, we got this now. It was a good start. We're good. Kingdom of me. But Paul says, now you're a part of the kingdom of God. And as God's people who are, have been set apart as the body of Christ, now you're to live differently. You're to be imitators of God, and so you're going to be submitting to Christ. But then in verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, now you're going to be submitting to each other. And then he gets very, very specific in our passage today. He gets very, very specific, and he says, submission needs to be practiced in your marriage. In fact, marriage is not something that exists just for practical reasons. It's not just to populate the earth. It's not just for good, healthy families. That's not what it's just all about. Paul tells us that God created marriage for the special purpose of giving us a picture, a, a concrete image of this relationship between Christ and his church. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5.31, kind of near the end of our passage today. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, he's quoting Genesis, and will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Paul says that the significance of marriage, that's been a mystery. Not that it's been hard to figure out and we've been trying to figure it out, but God's kept it hidden from us until now. And now we see that God created marriage for something more than just human flourishing. He created it as a way for us to show off the beauty of Christ and his church to all creation. This is something amazing. In marriage, at least the way God intended it to function, the way Paul's saying it should function now, the husband shows off Christ's love for the church. And the wife shows off the church's submission to Christ. Check out Ephesians 5.22, the very next verse, or the very first verse again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here it is. This is the elephant, right? It's in the room. It's here. Let's not all run away and get scared and freak out or anything like that. We have a tendency to do that when we hear the word submit. But we need to assure ourselves, Paul's not trying to establish some type of new limitations. It's not like he's saying, okay, you've got this wonderful new life, you've got these incredible things to look for, this credible future in Christ, you're to submit to one another, and you know, everything is going to be golden, you're going to be singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to each other, and now let's talk about wives. All right, wives, you need to submit. He's not doing that here. He's not creating new boundaries. He's not trying to devalue women. And if he was doing that, he would be contradicting what he wrote in Galatians 3.26. In Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's made it clear that for those who have trusted Christ... They're now of equal value and importance. It's one of the awesome things that Christ has done. He's leveled this playing field. So apart from him, there are caste systems, there are levels of education, there's status, there's fame, there's uh, levels of income, all of these different things that separate us. And yet in Christ now, we're unified as being equally needy as being equally saved, as being equally valuable members of the body of Christ. What Paul's saying here, he's not saying, wives, I want to I push you down here. Instead, he's saying, wives, do you realize this? You have this special role that God has entrusted you with. In your marriages, you're to show off the way the church submits to Christ. As you're filled with the Spirit, wives are to show off the church's submission to Christ as they submit to their husbands. This is what all Christians are supposed to be doing to each other, right? This isn't something new. But the place you have in your marriage is this unique opportunity to make Christ look awesome. There are numerous places in the Bible where Christ is pictured as the groom. He's preparing his bride, the church, and he's waiting for the day that she will be united with him. The culmination of all of this is in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to take place. Revelation 19.6. Just listen to this. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it's granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are the true words of God. Does that sound like a funeral to you? Does that sound like the end of a a tragic story? Where you've just seen years and years of oppression and hardship and injustice, and, and there it is. There's the devastation just laid plain for you. And you just look at it, oh my gosh, what a train wreck. As is, we look at so many marriages today, right? So much abuse from a husband and, and, and different stuff that's going on. And then we see this marriage just completely fall apart. And we see the devastation here, the kids over here suffering, and just this huge mess. But that's not what this is. This is the culmination of a beautiful relationship of submission and love between Christ and his church. There must be something different here about the way submission is viewed. The submission of the church to Christ, it's a beautiful thing. The way the church submits to Christ is is this. It rejoices in his care for it. Isn't that the way way you come to Christ? You, You recognize how bankrupt you are. And what an incredible thing that Christ has done on the cross for you. And you say, I'm laying it down, Lord. I, I've been trying to make my, polish my life up, make it look good. I've been trying to do this and that. I, I'm not good enough. I, you did it. I want this. It receives his care, rejoices. It relies on him for its well-being. It trusts him for its protection It enjoys the love that he showers down on it. It voluntarily looks to him for direction. It seeks to be united and to walk in step with him. And it longs for that day when it's going to be united with him in his presence. There's nothing demeaning about this. Christ being the groom and the head of the church, it's not about him showing superiority in some type of a cruel fashion and his believers cowering in fear, subjects down there. It's not about him being a dictator and the bride just cowering over in the corner. It's not about that. New Testament scholar Marcus Bart writes this, the submission to and respect for the husband to which the wife is specifically admonished is by no means the submissiveness of say, a cat or a a crouching dog. Paul's thinking of a voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful partnership as the analogy of the relationship of the church to Christ shows. See, the submission that Paul's talking about, John Stott says, is not unthinking obedience to his rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. He's not saying wives are to be slaves to their husbands. There's a different Greek word used in the New Testament for that. The word he uses here is this word, hupostasso. It's the idea of willingly putting oneself under. Warren Wiersbe writes, the word comes from a military vocabulary. It simply means to arrange under rank. 
The fact that one soldier is a private and another is a colonel does not mean that one man is necessarily better than the other. It only means that they have different ranks. And when Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands, he's talking about appreciating and respecting this res- the weight of responsibility that God has given here. That God's given husbands in the marriage relationship. You see, you, you don't respect your husband because he's the wisest or the, you know, the smartest, the wealthiest, the hottest guy out there. You do it because God is a God of order. He's created marriage with a certain order, the husband having this role of headship. And we'll get into that in just a second, don't worry. When a believing wife submits to her husband's loving care, she shows what an awesome thing it is for believers to give themselves completely to Christ. This is the ideal, Paul says. This is what, this is what living the Christian life should look like. And if we're to be imitators of God, this is, this is what we strive for. But he doesn't stop with wives. Sorry, guys. Just as wives are given a special role, husbands are given an incredibly special role. Husbands are called to show off the love of Christ. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. At first glance, you might think, husbands have it easy. Isn't love the easy thing to do in a relationship? I mean, everybody wants that. Everyone wants to love, right? And probably most people would say, yeah, I want to sign up for the authoritative role. For sure, let's do that. It's much easier to give orders than to take them, but the word that Paul uses for love here is the game changer, and it shows that there's been a complete misunderstanding here. Having love or having authority God's way, you see, is about not getting my way. Because if I'm going to, if God has given me authority, then I'm under him, and I'm submitting to him. Submitting to God and giving myself the way Christ gave himself for me, as we saw in the garden. Here we have Christ submitting to God. Paul uses the word agapete, which is the present active imperative form of agape. And that's significant because it indicates this continuous, self-sacrificing kind of love. Look at verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about Jesus going to the cross to save you and me. Jesus willingly gave up his life to do what was best for us. And that's exactly what husbands are called to do for their wives. One pastor wrote this. When Christ came to earth in human form, he knew that he came to be mocked, Ridiculed, maligned, rejected, beaten, and crucified. He knew from eternity past what would be demanded of his eternal love if men were to be provided a way of salvation. He gave up his prerogatives as God's son 
not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being humbled, be he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Husbands, and those of you who will be future husbands, when we commit ourselves to our wives, we're saying, I'm not going to live my life for me anymore. Everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that I enjoy doing, I'll gladly lay down so that my wife will know God better and look more and more like him every day. So that when that day comes and and she stands before her maker, she is radiant. I'll give up anything for that. And in a way, we're to love our wives in such a way that it's a joy for them to carry out their call of submission. It's a joy, just like it's a joy for us to submit to Christ. As they see countless acts of love and self-sacrifice, they're reminded of the work that Christ has done for them, and they respond by gladly receiving it. Isn't that the way it is with our relationship with God? When we recognize all that he's done for us and the immeasurable riches he has in store for us, we almost almost can't help but enthusiastically respond by saying, God, here I am. Take all of me. I'm yours. I've tasted and I've seen that you are good. I want to be in line with you. And then Paul adds verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. I I won't say much here, but just this. Just as the church is Christ's body, husbands are to regard their wives as, as their own bodies. This type of special unity, it's the unity that God intended from the very beginning, the very first marriage. Remember, it says that the two, they'll become one flesh. And this is about more than just some type of physical union. This is about the joining together of two distinct people who were once apart, living separate lives, now walking hand in hand, step in step, and for the mutual good of one another. You see, to become one they have to lose something of themselves. But in losing their old single lives, they gain this new, fuller life together. Just as those who lose their lives by submitting to the sacrificial love of Christ find a new life that's far better than anything they've ever known. No matter what anyone else tells you, marriage matters. It was designed by God for a specific purpose, to give us this picture, this concrete image of the relationship between Christ and his church. As wives submit to their husbands, they give us a picture of how beautiful it is for the church to look to, to rely on Christ for his loving care. And as husbands love their wives, they demonstrate the incredible way that Christ laid down his life for the good of his church. If you placed your trust in Christ, the kingdom of me, that needs to end. The kingdom of God is here. 
Let's live the way that God intended all along. Let's live the way that Christ saved us to live. Let's be imitators of God, even in our marriages. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, I'm humbled by this passage. Because I know that Paul is saying, this is the way it should be. And I know, Lord, so very often I miss the mark. So very often, even though you've given me the role that I have, Lord, I, I don't measure up. And I know that's true for so many of us in this room. Our marriages are not perfect. And yet just because marriage is hard, that doesn't mean that we should just roll over and say, oh well. Lord, you've created, you've designed marriage to be this incredible thing. To point to the incredible marriage that we're going to have with you. And the incredible celebration that's going to be there. This marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we can't wait. Lord, may, may our marriages begin to, to really do what they're supposed to do. To really point to your incredible love for us. How you laid down your life for us people who were completely undeserving of your love. And, and may they model the, the submission that there is there of, of the church saying, I want what Christ has. I need what Christ has. I re- gladly receive this love. Lord, would you work in our marriages? Would you transform them? Would you create in us hearts that are humble? that are, first of all, in submission to you, recognizing you're, you're, you're the boss, you're in control, and you are so good. It's a great thing to know you, to love you, to be yours, and to walk in line with you, Lord. And may that filter down into our relationships with our wives and with our husbands, Lord. May we submit to each other. May we love each other the way Christ loved us, Lord. And as people look at us, would they see that there's something different here? And Lord, would you give us opportunities, if that time comes, to say, I'll tell you what's different. It's Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time we've had together in your word. Pray your blessing on all in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.